Welcome to episode 68 of That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, James J. Asher II. I am currently recording uh, at 6.36 p.m. on Monday, June 29th, year 2020. And today, I am going to read some lib shit to ya. In honor of the great Chopo Trap House subreddit diaspora. Let's see here. Let me pull this up real quick. That's not what I was looking for. Ah, uh, give me just a second. Oh boy. <clears throat> I'm looking for a book that I saved here. You know. It's just a real fucking bummer, because today, you know, there was like this drama over the weekend. I spend way too much fucking time on Reddit, because I don't have anything else to do with my life, especially amidst quarantine. It's not like I can go out and make friends at the bar, which is not something I would do anyway, because I'm not in college anymore. And it's not that it's like, I'm too old to do that. It's just, people don't do that around here. It's just fucking, uh, you know, people are really cliquish in this town, and... uh Where's this fucking books app I'm looking for? Readers. Oh. It's in the uh, section I got uh, stuff I never use apps. Um, yeah, so I spend a lot of time on Reddit. And um, there was some worry over the weekend. There was some rumblings. There was some rumblings. There were some rumblings that um, a bunch of subreddits were going to get banned because of like um, the Reddit administrators are cracking down on hate speech. So they were getting rid of like the Donald, which is um, a subreddit, as you can imagine, devoted to Donald Trump and just some really fucking hateful people there. Like they were trying to coordinate goddamn like neo-Nazi rallies and shit like that on there. Meanwhile, Chopo Trap House was just a hub for leftists. It was not preaching any kind of violence or anything like that. Um, but just to kind of like, well, both sides, you know, try to be in some effort to remain politically neutral, which is fucking impossible. Like if someone says they're apolitical or they're just not into politics, to say that someone is uh, is apolitical, that is in a, a political stance. If you choose to not do politics, that is a political stance. You can't avoid being political in any way. So fucking just own it, you know? But anyway, uh, the administrators uh, banned the subreddit that I spent a lot of time on and loved. Had a lot of memes there. I actually learned a lot of stuff. And um, it helped me be a little bit less of a lib and more of a um, actual leftist. Although, you know, it's a it's, it's a fucking lib run sub for libs. Uh, if if you're not terminally online, none of this means anything to you, and that's okay. Good for you. You're not terminally online. Well, anyway, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read because. I just have not been able to focus so much on anything really since, well, quarantine got really serious. 
like up until that point at the beginning of this year, I was reading like, whew, like a book every two, two weeks to a month. You know, I was doing very well with the reading. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything got weird. And it's just been difficult for me to focus on reading in general. Um, I mean, it's understandable why it would be difficult to focus at first. You're getting used to this new quarantine, pandemic land, world, reality. Um, But after a while, I mean, it's been months now, and I'm still finding it difficult to focus. So I figured I was just going to uh, use this time to do some, uh, some light reading with you. So, uh, strap in. You're about to get to hear me read some fine literature. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read A of the ABCs of Capitalism by Vivek Chibber, which, if memory serves me, this was published by Jacobin, and uh, this is a free thing you can get online and it's not like a pirated kind of free thing. They promote it for free. Um, you can pay for a hard physical copy, but any digital copies are free provided by the publisher, Jacobin mag. Um, but here we go. It's the first of three books, the ABCs of capitalism. This one is a understanding capitalism. Let us begin. Uh, uh, In order uh, to order individual or bulk copies, go to Jacobin Mag, that is J-A-C-O-B-I-N-M-A-G dot com slash store. And you can get this. Uh, Okay, here we go. Understanding Capitalism. In early 2015, the Gallup agency polled Americans on what they thought was the most pressing concern for the United States. The winner? A cluster of issues labeled economic problems, which at 38% topped all other issues by a factor of more than two to one. If we add concerns such as healthcare, 10%, education, 7%, and poverty slash joblessness, 4%, matters of economic welfare were the biggest concern for 60% of respondents. A few weeks later, the Pew Charitable Trust queried Americans on their sense of financial security. It found that 50% of those polled decla- 50% of those polled declared that they felt acutely insecure about their financial situation. An astounding 71% declared that they could not pay their bills, and 70% said that they did not have enough saved to retire. The feeling of insecurity about their future weighs so heavily on the minds of Americans that a whopping 92% said that they would give up economic mobility in exchange for economic security. 
it is not that respondents don't wish for mobility. Rather, they view their situation as being so precarious that they would forego future economic gains for a sense of stability here and now. Things are not this bad for everyone. In fact, those at the apex of American for those at the apex of American society, life has never been so good. For America's richest families, the last 40 years have been something like a non-stop party. Even as incomes have stagnated for the last for the vast majority, the richest 10% have gotten richer and fatter. In the United States, 88% of all the increase in personal wealth between 1983 and 2016 went to this group, while none went to the bottom 80%. If we turn to income growth, about 83% of increases in income since 1982 went to the top 10%, while the bottom 80% only got 8% of the total. So, even as the economy has gotten better and more efficient since 1980, almost all of the direct benefits have gone to those who are already rich. Any decent person would agree that there is something fundamentally wrong with this situation. How can it be that in a society which such with such enormous resources and wealth, a thin layer of the population at the top gets to have everything, while millions upon millions experience life as a daily grind, a struggle just to make ends meet? Well, mainstream media and talking heads do have an explanation, and it tends to be of two kinds. The first one places the focus on individuals. It's exemplified in what Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain said in his 2012 primary campaign, quote, If you don't have a job and you're not rich, or, yeah, if you don't have a job and you're not rich, blame yourself, end quote. What Kane meant is that the only thing standing between you and a decent life is your willingness to work hard. So if you are in poverty, stuck in a bad job, or simply unemployed, it is because you cannot or will not put in the effort to succeed. You either refuse to put in the hours, or you refuse to accept the wage and the hours that the job comes with. You are either too lazy or too precious. But if this is so, if of course you have no one to blame but yourself. The second explanation blames the government. The basic idea is that social problems arise because the government keeps interfering in the market, preventing it from functioning the way it is supposed to. If left to itself, the market is both fair and maximally efficient. As long as people want to work, everyone will find a job. If they have special skills, the market will recognize and reward them for it. If they have an idea that will make money, banks will give them credit to start their own business and become rich. Markets spontaneously tend towards full employment, and they reward people for their talents. 
The problem is that governments won't leave them alone. Politicians and special interests pile on regulations that squelch entrepreneurial initiative. They launch welfare schemes that get people hooked on welfare. They don't let goods flow freely across borders and so on. The solution, therefore, is to let the government is to get the government out of the economy and let the market do its magic. It's easy to see that this is the view from the mansion. It is the ideology of the winners, those for whom the system works fantastically well. On this view, if someone is rich, it must be because of their hard work, not because they have the advantage of class. Their money reflects their skills and talents, not the power they wield over their workers. There is no oppression and no exploitation, only free choice and opportunity. For the last few decades, this explanation for many for people's misery didn't face much of a challenge. For what seemed like a lifetime, it looked like people saw no choice but to hunker down and to just get through and try to just get through, even if they had doubts about what their TVs and their teachers told them about how society works. The idolatry of the market seemed to drown out every other voice. But in the past few years, it's become pretty clear that people aren't buying the message anymore. Whereas it seems it was only yesterday that Margaret Thatcher proclaimed there was, quote, no alternative, end quote, to the market fundamentalism that she espoused and implemented. That ideology is now in shambles. The signs are everywhere, but most evidently in the explosive success of new left-wing political candidates in the Atlantic world. Bernie Sanders' campaign and the 2016 Democratic Party primary in the United States, Jeremy Corbyn's amazing success in Great Britain, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, Mel- Mélenchon's garnering of 20% of the vote in the first round of the French presidential elections, and the emergence of Podemos in Spain. On the flip side is the significant decline of the traditional parties of the center and the right, from France to Spain and Greece, and quote-unquote alternative, to use Thatcher's language, is exactly what people seem to want. In 2015, the most frequently entered query in Google's search engine was socialism. Socialism is back in the air because there is a growing sense among working people that the problems they face aren't the doing of this or that party or politician, but stem from the way the system itself works. And in fact, this institution on the part of billions of people is correct. Wait, wait, I fucked that line up. Let me reread that, please. That's way different. Uh, Here it is. And in fact, this intuition on the part of billions of people is correct. The problem 
is the system. And if we're going to do anything to make the situation better, it is important to understand how that system works. This is a long essay. It might be useful to summarize in advance what it says, says, says. The big five points to take away from it are as follows. And let me take a drink of my green tea for a moment. For those of you watching, I am drinking out of a mug that says coffee. But little do any of you know, I'm drinking hot green tea out of it right now. Listen as I blow onto the hot green tea and try to cool it off so I do not burn my mouth and my tongue and my throat and my gut and my little spermies. Do you hear that? That's me blowing. You didn't know you were going to get some BDSM on this, did you? Are you getting the tingly effect? Oh, goddamn, that's some good tea. I think this is... Oh, yes, this is jasmine green tea. It's loose leaf. I uh, got it from Central Market. Mmm. Oh, it feels so good. Mmm. All right. And I continue. The five big points to take away from it are as follows. One, capitalism isn't just a collection of individuals, but individuals grouped in social classes. People don't come to the market as individuals competing on a level playing field. They are grouped into different classes and face very different economic conditions. The basic fact that uh, differentiates the people into these classes is whether or not they own the means of production, land, factories, banks, hotels, etc. The vast majority of people don't. The only way they can survive is by working for those who do own the means of production, called capitalists. So, most people in capitalism are simple workers, and they have no choice but to sell their labor effort to capitalists. Capitalists, in turn, sell the goods and services that they produce by hiring the workers. Both groups are forced to sell on the market, but what they sell is very different. For those of you who are unfamiliar uh, with Marxist theories, hey, you're probably on camera, yo. Are you naked? Oh my god. You gotta tell me this shit. I got the camera going right here. Are you wearing pants? Hey, are you clothed or not? Like, what do you mean? Are you wearing pants? Are you wearing underpants? You are? Well, then it's fine. We didn't see any nudity. I'm not going to edit this.
Jesus. You know, I'm fucking recording here. You know, I do this every week, except I missed last week, people. I am so sorry. This is so unprofessional. If you want to help me get professional, you should donate. Oh, no, no, no. Go on. I'm blocking the camera. Are you wearing underpants? Yeah. Is your vag hanging out? Maybe. Oh, my God. This is so... If you want to help me get professional, you should donate. Don't laugh. I'm a fucking pro. I'm, if you want to help me get professional... um. You can donate to the show at uh, www. period Patreon. That's p a t r e o n period com slash that thing with James. There, you can become a monthly donor and get access to the very short stories I publish on there on occasion. Hopefully, at least once a month. Hmm. All right, where were we? Sorry, I'm just so stressed out right now. I got to do this. Okay, back to the ABCs of capitalism. Oh, yeah, uh, this is like... Marxism for dummies. All right. So that's what this is. Onward to number two. Capitalists and workers have very different interests. Capitalists are driven to maximize profits, but in order to succeed, they typically have to wage constant war on their own employees. What every employer tries to achieve is to produce as cheaply as possible and to squeeze as much as she can out of her workers for every dollar she gives them. This naturally means that each employer tries to keep her employees' wages as low as she can, while also getting as much work out of them as she can in return. This runs against what workers desire. Whereas the employer wants to keep wages low, the worker wants to set them as high as she can. And while the employer wants to set the pace of work as high as she can, the worker wants to keep it at a reasonable level. But because the employer is the stronger party, workers have to accept the terms even though it undermines their well-being. Have you ever had a job? Did it suck? Did they work you into the ground and not thank you? Or did they try to fucking thank you with a pizza party? Yeah, fuck them. And while I'm at it, since the Chopo Trap House sub got cancelled, I want to express some impotent rage. ACAB, fuck the police, um, pig poop balls, um, capitalism is a fuck, America is a fuck, 
the whole Russia gate. I mean, I'm sure there is Russian interference just as we interfere with everybody else, but it's not like Trump saying, Oh, you know, we do bad stuff too. It's not like that. It's just, it's a f- easy fucking distraction that was used back during the red scare days, even during the civil rights movement of the early 1960s. Uh, people would say, you know, people with political power or media power would say that the civil rights protesters and demonstrators were outside agitators saying they were fucking spies from Russia. Sound familiar? It is because it's the same fucking people using the same fucking playbook. These old people got to die. I think a lot of these problems right now might just be because there's uh, just uh, old people. They need to be fucking taking naps instead of running shit right now. And right now, their uh, their grasp on any sort of power is sort of like what uh, oh like that one actor said that dude from um, oh, fuck what's his name from Planet of the Apes when asked about like his rifle because he was a huge NRA right wing nut job he was like you can pry it from my cold dead hands that's kind of how they are about their power anyway um. Also, just a reminder, this podcast is a comedy, so um, everything I say here is is but a parody. It's not real. I don't really mean any of this. I don't really mean that we should uh, overthrow the capitalist structure by any means necessary. And I mean by any means necessary. And I also don't mean to say in a serious manner, like if I were to say the only way to really fight a fascist um, is not necessarily through peaceful means, because what is dignity and good intentions and, uh, peace to someone who only wants to see you fucking dead. But that's a joke. I don't, I'm not, I don't really mean any of that stuff. This is a comedy folks. (laughs) Laugh track. I really need to get a soundboard for this onward. Hold on. Let me drink some more tea out of my coffee mug. I'm getting the thirst. Do do. I think this might be my worst episode yet. Not really. I've definitely had worse episodes. This is, um, I'm enjoying this and I'm really looking forward. Like the past 10 episodes have just been kind of like for me, all because I'm looking forward to the next episode and that next episode, this is episode 68. The next one is going to be 69. (laughs) Nice. You'd get it. Cause that's the sex number. I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I guarantee you it's going to be really fucking gross and immature. Mm. Did I mention I have a master's degree? Number three, capitalists aren't motivated by greed, but by market pressures. Capitalists don't cause harm to their employees out of malice or greed, although I'm sure some do. And as far as like a lot of cops and other people, oh, they totally fucking do shit out of malice and hate. Anyway, uh, their motivation 
while the capitalist's motivation comes from the brute reality of market competition. If a capitalist doesn't produce at the lowest price, she knows that she will lose customers, and if that continues, her firm will start bleeding money. So she has to keep her selling price as low as possible. But if she's going to lower her selling price, she also has to lower her costs, or she won't make any money. Hence, she tries to pay out as little as possible for her inputs. The machines and raw material that she buys, and the wages she's paying to her workers. So every... That was a weird way. Let me reread that. Reread that. Hence, she tries to pay out as little as possible for her inputs, the machines and raw materials she buys, and the wages she's paying to her workers. So, every capitalist constantly tries to get the most out of every dollar she spends, including from her workers. This is how firms survive in the market. It has nothing to do with greed. It's true. The way it's set up is intrinsically toxic, untenable, and uh, it thrives on constant crisis. You notice how we're kind of in an economic crash that collapsed, that it's going to uh, dwarf the 2008, quote-unquote, recession. It's a fucking depression. And what we've got coming, and we haven't even seen, like, uh, things have not started getting really bad yet. And it's not that they won't. It's not that it's unavoidable. It's just it hasn't really caught up yet. But we're going to be seeing a major fucking crash. Oh, and the pandemic is getting a lot fucking worse. And it'll be worse than it was at the first wave. Anyway, um, all of this stuff is part and parcel for how capitalism works. And yes, capitalism served a good purpose. It brought us good things. Um, And it moved us away from a um, feudal system. However, funny enough, it kind of has turned yet again into another feudal system. You and I, we are not workers. We're not citizens. We're not free people. We're serfs. We are serfs. Worse yet, slaves, debt slaves. And um, anyway, fucking don't get me started on the prison system. Number four, this creates enormous wealth, but also great misery for the majority. This is why, even though capitalism creates enormous wealth, its benefits are so lopsided. Workers would be better off if every time productivity went up, it meant higher wages and shorter working days. This doesn't happen in a free market. Even while productivity is increasing, employers respond by demanding more effort and longer hours. But just as importantly, even as profits go up, There is no guarantee that they'll come back to the employees as higher wages. The employer will prefer to keep the increased profits herself, either to pay out to shareholders, or to reinvest, or to put in her own pocket. 
This means that even as the economic pie expands, workers don't necessarily benefit from it. They can be stuck with stagnant wages, job insecurity, long hours, and ill health. If left to its own, the system itself creates enormous wealth for some and misery for many. Number five. Workers only advance if they act collectively. The reason you get fantastic riches on one side and mass misery on the others is very simple. Workers are dependent on their employers, so they have to accept the terms they are offered. The boss gets to call the shots. Even though capitalists and workers need each other, they are not equals. Yet, yes, a factory owner has to have workers, and workers need to find a job. It sounds like a good bargain for both, but in fact, the worker will always be more desperate than the employer. She typically has very little savings to tide her over, is living hand to mouth, and knows that if she doesn't agree with the wage being offered, there are lots of other equally desperate people who will take those terms. What makes her weaker is the fact that she is easily replaced if she turns down the offer. The only solution to this Uh, The only solution to this for workers is to make it harder to be replaced if they choose to refuse the employer's offer. And the only way to consistently do this is by banding together. In other words, individual workers defend their interests by forming collective organizations. This is the lesson they have learned over the course of two centuries. That's 200 years, folks. And it is as true today as it was two centuries ago. With this summary as a guidepost for our basic argument, we can work out the details. What is capitalism? And right now, I'm going to take a short breather, and I will be right back to keep reading to myself to you. Thanks for tuning in. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back on Who Do Do That Thing with James. Who Do 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 That Thing with James. Audio recording. Video and audio is recording. And I'm back. And I feel like playing a little guitar. I haven't played yet today, so I'll probably be rusty. Hmm. I've noticed that whenever I play guitar on this show, I always fail to warm up beforehand. But fuck it, I'm just gonna play.
to the show The break is over Now I'm back to sing you a song Before I get back to crushing the capitalist structure with you, my fans. What's that you say? I'm not a cum slut. Okay, uh, what's that you say? I'm not a cum slut. Okay, I don't care what your father said, he's a fucking liar. I don't care what your ma said, she's a whore. Like I said, I haven't warmed up yet. This is my warm up. <laughs> Fucking up. noise inside my head it won't give up it wants me dead and goddamn this noise inside my head it won't give up it wants me dead and goddamn this noise inside my head it won't give up it wants me dead and goddamn this noise inside my head
The room is empty, but I'm not alone. Piano, drums, Amanda Palmer sings a song about a world I wish I'd lived in. Turn down the opportunities. Let's start that over. God damn, I really got to warm up before this shit. I always fuck up. I swear to God, I'm better than this. I'm so much better than this, guys. My neighbor just came out and her fucking bone is blasting. It's like blah, 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 blah. Okay, onward. Uh, what is... Can you hear that? Can you fucking hear this loud shit? Could you hear that? It's like, uh, hello. Um, I did not ask to be a part of this conversation. Please end it. Um... I would like to exit the group. Moderators, please let me leave this chat. I don't want any part of that. Okay. <sighs> Back to the book. What is capitalism? Uh, wait a second. Is this what I already read? Uh, no. Okay, this is something new. Capitalism is a kind of economic system. It is a particular way of organizing the production of goods and services in a given population. Now, to suggest that capitalism is one way of organizing economic activity implies that it is not the only way of doing so. Let me make sure the camera's straight on me here. Is that better? Okay, I hope so. The only way of doing so. 
um, there have been other kinds of economic systems. Two well-known examples are the slave economy of ancient Rome and feudalism in medieval Europe and Asia. Also, slave labor here. Mm-hmm. Never ended. We still have slaves. Uh, so, what sets capitalism apart? How do we know it when we see it? The simplest way to identify capitalism is on the basis of something called market dependence. In a capitalist society, the vast majority of people depend on the market to make a living. What this means is that when people try to acquire the uh, basic necessities for their well-being, such as food, clothing, and shelter, they have to buy or rent them from someone else. They don't have the option of making the essentials themselves. A system in which everyone is market-dependent has several important characteristics. Characteristics. Number one, all production is carried out for selling on the market, not for self-consumption. What this means is that When workers make something, it is not for their own use. The main aim is the sale of that product to someone else. This has a profound effect on all aspects of production. Those people who organize and carry out economic decisions now have to focus single-mindedly on finding a buyer for their goods. It doesn't matter if the good or service is something they personally like or have a use for. All that matters is that someone else finds it desirable and wants to buy it. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, like I mentioned earlier, this is like Marxist for dummies or like Cliff's Notes of, of Marxist theory. And in Marx's seminal book, well, I don't know if seminal is the right word, but his main book, his magnum opus, which is Capital, Volume 1, not once does he ever talk about communism. All it is, literally, is a critique of the capitalist economic system uh, as a system alone. And that is something that you don't learn in a lot of economic schools or business schools. They will not teach you the critique of capitalism. They'll teach you ways that you can try to exploit the system and exploit others via the system, but they don't really teach you the system itself. And even if you support capitalism, you should. If you support anyone or anything, you should have critical support. Don't become a cult of personality. Don't love it outright. Um, Be open and truthful about critiques that may exist in that thing that you like or support. Um, Otherwise, you're just dumb. You know, it's called critical support. So even if you support capitalism, have critical support and understand the criticisms and understand how capitalism itself works. Definitely not something you'll learn in your average public school system. 
I'm not even sure in a private school system, but whatever. Uh, okay. Number two, the labor that goes into, into production is by working people for a wage. Another way of saying this is that the typical form of employment in capitalism is wage labor, or what I like to call wage slavery. You are you watching and or listening are probably a wage slave, or you could even be a salaried slave. Either way, probably a slave. For most of human history, most people were self-employed. They worked on their own plots of lands as peasants, or in their own establishments as craftsmen. In capitalism, self-employment is the exception, not the rule. What is most common for people, what is most common is for people to work for someone else. They work under their employer's direction for an agreed-upon amount of time and at an agreed-upon rate of compensation. The most common is an hourly rate, which is called a wage. Number three, productive establishments are privately owned. What this means is that the places that hire wage laborers, like factories, warehouses, restaurants, and hotels, are owned by individuals who have full and exclusive authority over what to do with them. They also have authority over whom to hire, how many people to employ, what to produce, whether or not to expand production, and so on. These owners are called capitalists, or what I call pigs. Not to be confused with the other pigs. Boys in blue. Then blue line. It's one thing protecting you from utter chaos. And the assets they own, the capitalists own, are called capital. <clears throat> <clears throat> so capitalists own assets that are called capital. These three elements are foundational to a capitalist system. It is important to note that while there are while all three are important, it is really private ownership that gets the ball rolling. Wage labor was present to some extent in many economic systems. It existed in ancient Rome and in every kind of medieval system in Europe and Asia. It was also very common to have trade and exchange, and, in fact, virtually every society with settled agriculture has had trade both within and outside its, its boundaries. But, in all such cases, wage labor and trade were pretty minor phenomena. People worked for wages, but usually just to supplement what they produced on their own land holdings. Land holdings, that is. They might have there might have been some people who relied mainly on wage labor, but their numbers were small. Similarly, Trade has been around for centuries, even millennia, but family units very rarely depended 
on exchange of their survival exchange for their survival what they took to the market was usually a surplus left over after the basic consumption needs had been satisfied hence they didn't organize their production with the goal of selling on the market what they made therefore remained geared toward personal consumption so the mere fact so the mere fact that there exists some wage labor is not evidence of capitalism nor is it existence is nor is the existence of trade and exchange both of these phenomena have existed within pre-capitalist economic systems in capitalism wage labor and trade have moved to the very center of economic activity they have become the organizing principles for production and distribution so trade and wage labor become markers of capitalism even when they become the anchors of the entire wait i'm adding words and i'm itchy for some reason i don't know why <clears throat> probably because I'm like cooling down. I had the AC running and now it's getting warm and muggy again. And my body temperature's fucking weird. I need to take a shower, y'all. I'm feeling greasy. Um, okay, let's start this paragraph over, shall we? Over, over, over. So trade and wage labor become markers of capitalism when they become the anchors of the entire economy. That is, when they become the means by which production and consumption are carried out. And historically, this only happened once the vast majority of people lost their access to the means of production. Throughout most of human history, the vast bulk of the population lived on the land and, more importantly, individual families had publicly recognized rights to plots of land. As long as they had access to this land, they could produce for themselves. They grew their own crops, produced much of uh, their own articles of consumption, and therefore did not have to rely either on selling uh, on the market or working for a wage. They still participated in market transactions, and they even resorted to wage labor occasionally, but their survival never depended on these activities. They relied on them only to supplement their income and consumption. As long as they had access to the means of production, they could keep market forces at bay in their lives. But once the economic actor once economic actors are stripped of the means of production, once they lose access to land and capital, the conditions for their economic reproduction undergo a sea of change. And I'm not talking about the letter, and I'm not talking about the verb, I'm talking about the, the noun, the S-E-A, a sea of change. And that means a lot of change. They can no longer rely on their own crops or handicrafts to survive since they don't have 
access to key factors of production. They have to buy their articles of consumption on the market, which means they have to first find a way of acquiring money in order to purchase them. This money comes from working for those few people who now have taken exclusive control over the means of production, the capitalists. I wonder if this is going to cover the way, like, I wonder, how did those people manage to get their hands, uh, uh, manage to get exclusive control and ownership of the means of production? If it doesn't, tell it very soon, I'll give you a little preview. The way that people acquire the means of production and uh, originally was through violence and violence alone. And perhaps someone earned a lot of capital, which they could then put through production to turn into more capital. Perhaps they received that through an inheritance from family, per se, uh, for example. Um, but where did the family get that money to begin with? Violence. Violence, violence, violence. The act of acquiring the means of production is a result of violence. And the act of holding on to those means of production is also violence. What's happening to you and me, although we may not be getting punched, although we may not be getting shot, what's happening to us is still very much an act of violence. And I wonder what it would take to level the playing ground, the playing field. Anyway, back to this. <clears throat> Another way of putting all this is that capitalism comes about when a particular kind of class structure is created, in which there is a small group on one side called capitalists who control the basic means of production, and another group, the vast majority on the other side, who don't have any choice but to seek employment from these capitalists. We call the second group the working class. It's the creation of this class system that brings about complete market dependence for everyone. The very act of creating a class of capitalists and a class of workers spreads the market throughout society. But how does this happen? Here's how. By depriving the bulk of the population of the means of production, two new mass markets have been created simultaneously. First, by forcing the bulk of the population to go out looking for jobs. We have created a market for labor power. Owners of capital wishing to produce a good can now find labor on this newly established labor market. Or you might have heard the job market. How's the job market looking right now? Um, second is by forcing these wage laborers to purchase their consumption goods on the market. We have created a mass market for those very goods, a market that didn't exist before, since people relied on their own means of production to feed and clothe themselves. 
There is now a market for labor and another one for the goods that is that this labor will produce. Whereas previously, both of these were either very small or non-existent. Hence, what has kept wage labor and market exchange at the margins of economic production throughout most of human history is the absence of private property. And what enables them to take over the economy, to become the drivers of production and consumption decisions, is when one group of people manages to throw the bulk of the population off the land, period. What's time looking like right now? Okay, what is that, an eight or a nine? It's an eight. All right, I'll keep reading for a bit more. It's all about profits, baby. I added in the baby. So now we know that in a capitalist economy, most people are distributed into two great classes. Production is controlled by capitalists who employ workers to produce goods and services. These are sold on the market as commodities. It is from the sale of commodities that both workers and employers derive their income. This is worth examining a little at a little more length. Karl Marx gave a very intuitive description of the process through which a capitalist goes about their business. Suppose you're a capitalist with a sum of money that you want to use to start an enterprise. This sum of money is represented by the letter M. And in this, it shows a very simple three-character equation. I'm not going to show it to you on the camera because it won't be much use to listeners anyway, so I'll, I'll read it as best as I can. I'll try to paint the picture with my beautiful, beautiful voice. Okay, suppose you're a capitalist with a sum of money that you want to use to start an enterprise. This sum of money is represented by the letter M. With this M, the capitalist then goes out and buys what she needs to produce goods or services. Land, machinery, raw materials, and of course, labor power. That is, workers produces um, um, what she needs to produce good or services, and she produces the commodity and takes it to the market to sell. The commodities produced are, are denoted by C. If C, the letter C, is successfully sold, the capitalist is able to recoup the money originally spent on inputs. Uh, wait, wait, if C is successfully sold, the capitalist is able to recoup the money originally spent on inputs M. This completes the cycle of production. We can represent this as M yields C yields M. That is money or capital, let's call it capital, stay with it. Capital yields commodity, yields capital. You spend money to get other people to make a product, a commodity, and then 
sell that product for more than it cost to make with raw materials and raw labor, and then sell it at a price greatly jacked up. Jacked up as in costs much more than it did to make. So you get more money back than you put in to produce a good. And if you're at the top, you keep more of that than the people who actually put in the physical labor, the mental labor, the emotional labor of making those commodities. But I'll keep reading. So M yields C yields M. The M at the end of the production period represents the same sum of money that the employer started with, the original investment. If the employer manages to recoup this amount from sales revenue, she is in a position to start a new cycle of production and enter the market again to try her luck. If the original sum M is not recouped and revenues are less than the original value, there will be a drain on the employer's wealth. So at the very least, the capitalist needs to end up with the money she originally had, if she wants to stay in business. But while it is important for her to recoup her original investment, of course this isn't all she needs. For one thing, she won't have made any money herself. For the capitalist to derive an income for herself, there has to be an addition to the original value of M, a surplus over the money she's paid out to others. We can represent this as delta M. The delta stands for the additional increment she has made over her initial investment, her profit. It is from this profit, the delta M, that she derives her own income, and also the money with which she can expand her operations, perhaps buy new machinery, etc. So the new M actually needs to be of a greater value than the original one if she wants to do more than just cover her costs. The more accurate way of representing the cycle is therefore as follows m equals c or m yields c yields m plus delta m so you make the money you spent plus more money the new increment is hardly a side note it's actually the most important part of the production effort for the capitalist, the whole point of the cycle is to end up with delta M, plus money, extra money. If not for that, her entire effort becomes a kind of philanthropic endeavor in which she pays others but takes nothing home for herself. The delta M is the capitalist's profit, and as everyone knows, it is the pursuit of profit that shapes the entire organization of production in capitalism. We know now that we know now what the capitalist is after. Profit. We know that she owns the means of production with which she can acquire it. Once she has her material inputs in hand, the machinery, buildings, raw materials, etc., 
All she needs is to find labor. If she is operating in a setting where peasants or farmers have not been stripped of their land, this is, of course, a major stumbling block, since the labor she needs will not be available. This is why capitalism requires depriving the bulk of the population of the means of production so that they have to go out looking for work and make themselves available to employers. But since we are assuming that this expropriation has been accomplished, then finding a sufficient number of workers on the labor market is rarely a problem. The capitalist now has to do two things. First, she has to get her employees to do the work that is needed to produce the commodity she wishes to sell. She can do this in a couple of different ways. The most typical in advanced industrial countries is by bringing them together under one roof in some kind of productive enterprise, a factory, a workshop, a hotel, a restaurant, a nursing home, a warehouse, etc. Here she provides them with the raw materials, tools, machinery, etc. that are needed to make the commodity, and with this puts them to work. They put these uh, implements to use, and at the end of the production period, they present her with the commodity she wishes to take to the market. In the case of services, they sell them on site to customers as they come in to purchase them. Either way, the capitalist has to be sure that her employees will provide her with the one thing she needs from them the requisite labor effort that must go in to production of the commodity. The process of acquiring this labor effort from workers, that is, the time during which they are at work producing the good or service, is called the labor process. In advanced capitalist societies, the labor process is supervised by the employer or managers to ensure that the employees work as hard as the boss needs them to. But in many parts of the world, especially in poorer countries, capitalists hire workers who do not carry out the labor process under one roof. Instead, they work at home often working as a family, and sometimes hiring a small number of workers themselves. This, the second method of production, is a kind of subcontracting or contracting out. This is as much a capitalist form of production as the first one, since the basic organizing principles are the same. Work is being done by workers for a fixed rate, and the products are made for sale not personal consumption. What is different is just the location of the labor process. It is decentralized instead of being located in one building or, or set or compound. Now comes the second thing capitalists need to do, cap, a, the capitalist needs to do, sell the product. If the sales effort goes as expected, then the initial investment will have paid off and there is profit, the delta M. 
The capitalist is now ready to start the process anew, hire the workers back for the next production period, return to the market with a new batch of goods, and maybe earn another round of revenue. It seems simple enough, but as it happens, it is not that simple. What the capitalist typically finds is that the market is nothing like this peaceful fantasy. It is in fact more like a war zone, and the challenges of the market affect every part of the production process, forcing adjustments at every step, from buying inputs to marketing. And I'm running up on time here, and there's some really important things to cover in here, but I mean... I'll just read some of the headers. The pressure of competition. What turns the market into something like a war zone is the fact of competition. When capitalists try to sell their product, they find one of two things. The most common is that they are not the only ones trying to market that particular commodity. There are other capitalists also trying to do the same, bringing their own goods, so on and so forth. And a you know, a usual thing you will hear from people talking about the good of capitalism, usually uh, in comparison to a socialist structure, is that capitalism drives innovation. But it actually doesn't. If you look at USSR, look at what they fucking achieved during their short run as a communist nation, the USSR. They went from fucking farmers they were like not even industrialized to landing on the fucking moon like that it's insane and the uh literacy rates went up everything it's just that they did not manage to really implement really implement a marxist economic structure um they had a lot of the ideals, but it kind of fell apart because of opportunists um, asserting authoritarian problems and, and creating too big of and too alienating of a bureaucracy. But just because they had some problems doesn't mean that it was a failure. If you're talking about developments as a culture or industrial or scientific developments, artistic developments, I mean, what they achieved is nothing less, nothing short of amazing. Um, I There's plenty of stuff. I mean, I, I don't have all the stuff. I don't have the ammunition on me right now uh, to refute this capitalism drives innovation claim, but there's a lot out there that can show you, uh, that proves that actually it stagnates um, innovation because of the competition to make, uh, you know, um, the race for obsolescence, the eight, the race for cheaper things, cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. So if you're not really dedicated on making product that someone, I mean, it, it doesn't pay to make a product that doesn't fall apart. It doesn't pay to have a reliable product that you only have to buy one of once in your entire life. That doesn't pay. So engineered obsolescence is a thing. So the thing you bought, the iPhone you bought, falls apart after a few years. Oh, just in time for the new generation of iPhones to come out. Uh, so there's pressure of competition. I'm just going to 
try to sum this stuff up before I quit. Uh, the compulsion to minimize costs. Is that not what I just talked about? The um, only way for a capitalist to maintain her profit while cutting her selling price is by reducing her costs. There are two dimensions to this. The first is the most obvious. When she goes out to buy machines or to find a building to rent or to hire labor, she will choose the cheapest option available. Remember your fucking employers trying to make you happy by throwing a fucking pizza party instead of raising your wages? I wonder which would cost them more, the wage or the pizza wage increase or the pizza party. The pizza party costs less because they're fucking cheap. Um, you have to make sure that whatever inputs you get are also efficient and productive. This is the second dimension to cost reduction. The inputs have to be the cheapest ones available, but which will also give back a decent return by performing up to standards set by the competition. Standards that are usually pretty fucking low. Um, and they will... Uh, propaganda your way, pro, you know, advertise their way um, into convincing you to have lower standards and to think that your low standards are actually high standards. Um, there's no point to buying a cheap machine if it keeps breaking down. It doesn't help to locate to a low rent building if it doesn't have a reliable power supply. And low wage workers don't help if they just stand around all day or lack the needed skills. What a capitalist needs is not the cheapest inputs per se, but the best bargain. What makes the inputs a bargain is not just how much they cost, but also how much output they can provide in return. What are some more headers here? Yada yada, going through, skipping. Income distribution. Oh, this is a big one I wish I'd seen earlier. How's my battery life looking? Hold on a second, let me look at this. Battery life. Battery's about to die. Let me let me try to run this over real quick before the camera battery dies, folks. Income distribution. The most obvious way in which employers benefit at the expense of workers is in how the gains from production are shared. The basic structure of employment in capitalism is that employers offer jobs at a certain wage, and employees are free to take that offer or refuse it. But while this seems like a fair bargaining situation between two parties, it in this case, the transaction is between two very unequal sides. People looking for jobs are doing so because they don't have enough to live on. They enter the labor market with little or no savings to fall back on. Employers, on the other hand, are by definition holders of wealth, typically with a healthy income flow, and are also able to secure credit and loans if they need it. So the bargaining situation is between one person, the worker, who is desperate for an income and another, the employer, who already has a stock of wealth at her disposal. Obviously, the employer is in a much stronger position than the worker. This inequality in leverage means that employers are able to set the terms of the employment contract to massively favor them over the employees. They are able to demand that they get the lion's share of the income at their that their firm generates. Workers are free to refuse this deal, of course, but at the cost of risking unemployment. 
So the choice for them is between settling for an unfair bargain or having no income at all. Okay, um, that's it for this episode. I will be back for episode 69, <laughs> the sex number, next week. Please uh, subscribe, become a donor to the Patreon. I can really use your help if you're able to. Um, and if you have not subscribed to the show, please do. And uh, tell your friends about this show. Spread the love. I love you all. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Love you long time.